keeping the focus on the spiritual eye, we're going to read the affirmation for this week from Affirmation for Self-Healing by Swami Kriyananda. Perseverance. Loyalty, my great spiritual teacher used to say, is the first law of God. Most people are fickle. They change their jobs, their spouses, their friends, their beliefs, their ideas, not because of any, exp any new expansion of awareness, but just because they lack the simple power of perseverance. One must be loyal to one's principles and not allow oneself to be ruled by sentiment. To be loyal to others and to one's assumed goals in life, not for sentimental reasons, but in the name of principle, is the way of divine progress. Perseverance can be difficult, for it every undertaking there is a certain amount of dull routine. Don't be ruled, therefore, by likes and dislikes, but do whatever has to be done. It is the right, let nothing intervene until the job is finished. And now we're going to repeat first in loud voice. I will finish what I set my mind to do. I will finish what I set my mind to do before leaving it for something else. Before leaving it for something else. My word is my bond. My word is my bond. So also is my resolution. In a quieter voice now, I will finish what I set my mind to do. Before leaving it for something else. My word is my bond. So also is my resolution. Whispering now, I will finish what I set my mind to do. Before leaving it for something else. My word is my bond. So also is my resolution. And mentally, I will finish what I set my mind to do before leaving it for something else. My word is my bond. So also is my resolution. And mentally pray with me. Though the sirens of destruction can call me to turn aside and relax the sterns of my dedication, Keep me steadfast on my path, Lord. My goal in life is Thee. Om peace. Amen. <coughs> and now from Race of the One Night, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. This week is reincarnation, the spiral staircase. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness within in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the book of Revelations, chapter 3, Jesus Christ tells us, Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. There is a difference between church dogmas, which are based on recent deductions from scriptural statements, and the pronouncements of wisdom, which are based on the inner realization of a scriptural truth. Reason, like a train, can only follow already existing tracks of human experience. Human memory, being short, <clears throat> is seldom able to cross back over the threshold of a person's present existence. 
biblical reference to the previous lifetimes on Earth are overlooked in the deductive process. And we find them, therefore, excluded from the body of official dogma. Nevertheless, such a references exist. The Bible itself presents them, as does Jesus in his passages. Not an abstract teaching, but a direct personal perception of truth. In the same way, Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, silences Arjuna's reasonable doubts on the subject not by recent arguments, but by the frank statement containing the fourth chapter of the greatest scripture. Arjuna, you and I have passed through many births. I know all of them. Thou, you, O chastiser of foes, recall them not. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, everyone. My name is Atman. This is Bhakti Mark. It's our pleasure to share our service with you. I'd like to welcome everyone, especially those who are here as guests or visitors, and special congratulations to the yoga teacher training class who have finished their month-long training course today, this morning. We also have some guests uh, with us who are learning to live from the inside out and creating healthy bodies and minds. And we have a number of people on the virtual network, so welcome to everyone. I'd like to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity. <clears throat> These are prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Bless me that I may know that I am dreaming, even though my senses tell me I am awake. As we rest and sleep, wake in the morning to our daily round of desperate seeming, but only half conscious activity, then fall back to sleep again at night. So also do we pass fleetingly from birth to life to death again, waking ever and again in new bodies, dashing about our appointments and other commitments, delighting in them or groaning at their importunity, then finding ourselves forced to leave everything at death's next summons, dream after dream of ceaseless earthly struggles. On the sleigh of incarnations, we find ourselves sliding by hopes and disappointments, victories and failures, fulfillments and disillusionments. When the smooth snow of easy passage melts and the underlying ice of insecurity breaks, we find ourselves plunged into heaving seas, eddies of gay, then desperate laughter, sargassos of cloying involvements, vast calms of indifference. Ah, all only dreams. When at last I awoke in thee, I discovered that I'd been dreaming all along. I'd only thought I was awake. So as I look out here this morning and I see faces of friends and faces of acquaintances who could be friends and I, I see personalities and names and roles in life and jobs but I also see, as our teachings teach us, I see behind that, and I can see little sparks of the divine, of light, of a soul's, 
who every single one has gone through a unique journey to get to this moment through minerals and plants and animals and other human lives and through countless incarnations to arrive at this point and this outward appearance that I see is just a manifestation of that unique and long journey, that little soul that's encased in this and is moving towards our eventual home where we're all going, our eventual home and oneness with God and light. And many of you in this room probably share that thought, that ability to look behind and see, you know, we're just a group of souls. They're just reincarnating and passing through this long corridors of consciousness till we merge at last, as it says in the, in the festival. And there's other of you that may not be so sure about that and say, well, that might be true. And then there might be some who are here who said, uh-oh, it's time to go for the exit. This guy's going somewhere where I don't really know if I want to go there. But just, you know, just relax and it's non-threatening. <laughs> just listen. <laughs> so our topic today, reincarnation, is, uh, is interesting in itself, but I also wanted to start. It's interesting from the fact that it isn't necessarily something that's easy to perceive or to know. And it sort of brings into question on the spiritual path, how do we know some of these things? Some of our practices, we can listen to the teachings and says, if I do this yoga posture and I breathe in this way, I'm gonna feel more peace, uh, more joyful. And that's pretty easy to verify. And if I meditate, I'll feel more calmness. That's pretty easy to verify. But the fact that you're a, a soul that's been incarnating and moving through time and space, that's not so easy to verify. And it's not so easy to know where truth is. I mean, truth is one and eternal. Truth is what it is. It's not like we can vote it into existence. It's not like our beliefs are gonna have any difference whether it you know, makes it true or not. So how, how do we really tune into truth on the spiritual path, these things that aren't so easy to know? Well, one way is just sort of being in the culture of that and absorbing that truth as a given. And 50% of the people in the world, more or less, say that they believe in incarnation. That's billions of reincarnation. That's billions of people. And most of the people here at Ananda, I would say, it's just our culture. It's part of our teachings. We just believe in it. There's people who have grown up here at Ananda who, of course, there's reincarnation. It's just part of who we are. And once you are in that cultural milieu, it gets, it gets reinforced, those beliefs, sometimes. So a lot of people in India who are very familiar with reincarnation will see things, will hear things, will order their world around that sense of reincarnation. The same here, when, when our son was three or four years old, one day he said to Bhakti Marg, he said, Mom, when I was old, I was in a library writing a book. Just sort of out of the blue, he said that. And Bhakti Marg said, hmm, that's interesting. And uh, that's probably something from a past life that's coming out here. And he didn't really expound on it very more, but he had never been to a library. And he, about the last thing he did was write books. He was not a writing kind of a guy. And, but she picked on that. But if I had said that to my mother when I was growing up, she would have just gone back to cooking dinner and just said, yeah, okay, yeah. So it depends, we get reinforced, we have filters and those filters choose to take things in which can reinforce a set of beliefs and that makes sense, that doesn't make sense. But often 
that's not necessarily enough. And so a lot of these people who believe in reincarnation, there's a scriptural basis to that. The Bhagavad Gita, one of the key scriptures of the Hindu faith, is very, very clear on reincarnation. Besides that passage that we read here, Krishna just says, Arjuna, I know all your lives. I remember all these. And countless places in the Gita talks about that, that the, the soul is deathless, ageless. It can't be burned. It can't be drowned. It can't be blown away. It is immortal. I mean, it just sort of hits you over the head with it continually in the Gita. And many of the other, the Buddhist scriptures talk about the wheel of life. So there's a scriptural basis to that, and that can help reinforce that belief. But Christianity, by and large, doesn't necessarily have one of its basic tenets, reincarnation. And you could say, there's a lot of people that probably do, a lot of theologians said, there's no basis for that in the Bible. But in fact, as Swami Kriyananda points out in the reading, there's a lot of different allusions to that in the Bible. That's, you know, he that overcometh will make a pillar in my church and shall go out no more. Go out into rebirth no more. Also, Jesus talks about it. He asked his disciples at one point, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you are Elias. Some say you are someone else. Why would people be saying that he's something else if there wasn't a, a belief in reincarnation? There's another place in the chat in there. He says, uh, one of the disciples was asking him a question and there was a, a, a baby was born that had had a, a deformity or some problem. And the disciple asked, was it the sins of this baby or the sins of the father? Well, it doesn't make sense if you don't believe in reincarnation that the sins of this baby would have any sins. So how could that be? So there, those questions are there. They're asking those questions. And one could ask, well, what happened to Christianity? Well, in 535 AD, at the Second Congress of Constantinople, the ruler, the emperor, not even the pope, decided that they were going to take reincarnation out of the official dogma of the church. And so in those days, uh, it was pretty easier or easier to control truth. And they took it out, and that became truth. There was no longer any reincarnation. But it's still there, and it's still... It's coming back. There's still many Christians in this country. There's 25% of the people in this country say they believe in reincarnation. Well, that's got to include a fair number of Christians. There's not all Hindu and Buddhists make up uh, 25%. So it's, it's kind of creeping into our, our cultural consciousness, especially if you live in somewhere like LA, it's probably a lot more on your consciousness than if you live in Peabody, Kansas, for example. But you know, the entertainment industry and past life regressions on the corner and psychics and it's just becoming more and more a part of of who and and what and how we think about things but oftentimes it's not all that well examined and there's always the stalwarts that say no truth at this day and age must be known through the scientific method through rational inquiry through deduction creating hypotheses experimentation and deep thought about these things. And there's many, many of the Western thinkers, as a matter of fact, through the years, have spoken about reincarnation. Uh, the great philosopher Hume and Schopenhauer spoke about it. Voltaire spoke about it. Luther Burbank, our own saint in the autobiography. Thomas Edison. All these were people who, are, who had looked at reincarnation and said, hmm, yeah, you know, giving this a rational exposition, it, it seems to make some sense. But the reality is it's not something, this metaphysical things, it's not something that's easy to 
apply the experimental method to. It's very hard to do an experiment that would prove or disprove reincarnation. As a matter of fact, it's impossible because it's not of this realm. It's not of the, the evidence doesn't necessarily come in that you can set up an experiment. But that doesn't mean that it's not subject to rational investigation. And Swami mentions in The New Path, uh, one person in particular, a fellow named Dr. Ian Stevenson. And it's a footnote in, the, in his chapter on reincarnation. And Ian Stevenson was the head of the psychiatric department at the University of Virginia in the 1950s, uh, impeccable academic credentials. And he became interested in this subject of reincarnation. And he started investigating. He said, well, I can't really set up experiments, but that doesn't necessarily bother him because in psychiatry and psychology, it's not so much the experimental method. And he said, but I can investigate this and I can be very detailed and scrupulous in my investigation. So he started investigating reports of memories of past lives. And a lot of them were from children, some of them were for adults. And he'd hear of a case and then he would go and investigate. And he was incredibly detailed and focused on this. Sometimes his investigations would span over 15 years. He would interview 40, 50 people involved with this. And any case that he looked at where there was a memory, say a child had a certain memory of a past life, and if there was any way that he could explain that by anything else, he may have heard this, he may have seen a picture, he may have heard something on the radio, that that might have gotten into his consciousness and he could be saying these things, he discounted the case. And he only focused on those cases where he could say, you know, I just can't find any other explanation of these things as to how these things could be happening other than reincarnation. He still, when he published his works, he still didn't say cases that prove reincarnation. He said 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation. <laughs> so he put it out there and his work is sort of the gold standard of, of these things. And it's, they're fascinating stories and they're, if you're, ever, uh, you know, if you're ever interested in the subject, I'm not going to go into all of them today, but there's some, it's just fun. I mean, there's one that, that caught my attention. There's a, this is around the beginning of the 20th century. There was, uh, uh, actually this one must not have been one that was investigated by Stevenson because he wasn't around at the beginning of the 20th century. But one of the cases that caught my attention, another one was there was a, a child in a, growing up who, whose mother noticed that he was just, saying sounds, she made no sense of them. And, and he would keep repeating the sounds, the same ones, until she said, well, you know, maybe these are words or something. And she brought in a friend, and then the friend brought in a professor, and then the professor brought in another professor. And long story short, they, they came to the conclusion that this child was speaking ancient Tibetan. And so they started questioning the child about, well, where did you learn this? And so I learned it at school. And the child hadn't been to school yet. So he said, well, where was your school? I was in the mountains, but it wasn't the mount like the mountains that we go to on vacation. And well, what did the teachers look like? It was, well, they don't dress like you and mommy and daddy. They, they dress in long robes and they have kind of a cloth around here. And he went on and on and they interviewed him. And this, this, this uh, investigator actually got enough information from this child that he went to Tibet and he actually found the monastery and verified any number of things that this child had said. And there were other cases of uh, someone, this was an adult. I mean, usually Ian Stevenson's cases were often 
children between the ages of two and seven, because at that point, they're cognizant enough to be able to verbalize what they're feeling and thinking, but they haven't gotten sort of steamrolled by adulthood of this incarnation. And so there's, there's this window in there, and that's where many of these things come out. And sometimes this comes out in adults, too, but one of Stevenson's cases from India, and again, many of his cases came from the East, where people were more open to listening to their child and saying, oh yeah, it's, that's reincarnation, rather than in the West where they just ignore the child as something he saw on television, or I don't know, he's babbling. But this one, uh, in a village in India, this girl was born, and she was always talking about her, her life in another village and was very agitated about it because there was something that wasn't right. And uh, she tur it turned out after more questioning that she uh, had... Uh, been murdered, and she had also witnessed a robbery. And this murder, she said, I had my, my uh, throat slit. And there was actually a scar on her throat where she said she had been slit. And she started naming these people. And this was a fairly recent past memory. So they went to this village, and she mentioned certain people who were involved in this. And they verified that, yes, in fact, there had been a murder that had happened here. And Yes, in fact, there have been some unsolved things. And this child then said, okay, look behind this wall. This is where the money is. And they opened the wall, and here's this bag of rupees that was stashed behind the wall. So it's pretty hard to account for some of that as uh, having seen that different places. And, you know, Ian Stevenson's work then brought many, many other people, you know, gave them the confidence to come forward and write their story. There's countless books out now. There's people who have... Ian Stevenson has died, but there's people who have taken his case studies and published them. There's some by Tom Schroeder. There's other ones by uh, Jim Tucker. There's also people who have had their own experiences. One of my favorites, which many of us here have read, is it's called Soul Survivor. And it was uh, written by um, the Leningers, a couple who had a child who was... Uh, plagued by nightmares, and he would wake up screaming, and he said, you know, plane on fire, plane on fire, little man can't get out, engine down, engine down, and he would just repeat this over and over, and very disconcerting. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare that wouldn't go away, and the, the parents started looking for ways they could help the child, and, and eventually they started questioning, and these were, these were more fundamental as Christians who didn't really have a sense of reincarnation at all. And they started questioning this and they just started investigating it and found these other books and other works. And anyway, they just kept going and going. And this, this child has some very, very vivid memories, so vivid to the point that he started drawing pictures of the plane that he was in. He started drawing places around it. He started saying other names of people who he had been, who had been with him. And it turned out they traced it back to he was a pilot in World War II who at the Battle of Iwo Jima had been shot down. His fighter plane had been shot down and had gone into this lagoon. And they ended up actually visiting the site. And they, many of the people that he was served in that squadron with were actually still alive. And so he went to meet them. And they, I mean, it's a fascinating story. So it's, a, it's, a, it's well done. It's worth, it's worth a read, especially if you're, you know, if you're interested in these kind of things. But, you know, as much as we have these detailed accounts and these unassailable rationality of people can say this is true, there's, you know, just do people really buy into this? 
Not necessarily. I mean, I gave this book to my father, and I think he read it, but he never asked me about it. He never questioned it. And I think a lot of people, it has implications that they just don't want to go there. It's, it's, it starts to question a number of different things, and they kind of dismiss it as, oh, maybe that was just, you know, ESP, or maybe it's they're tapping into the universal subconsciousness, or they just, you know, just kind of dismiss it and, and put it away because they themselves don't want to deal with it. And it's sort of like us, too. I mean, sometimes we're just, you know, we're just asleep. We're too, we're too engrossed in our important appointments and our things that we have to do in life and that how we make the next meal and get the kids to school. And, you know, you, see, you hear these things and you don't necessarily take them in or you don't necessarily say, wow, that's uh, life-shattering. That sort of changes the whole way I look at life. That's a hard thing to do. So it's, you know, as rational as we get, as Swami says, it's open, it, it depends more on the openness of the person or as much on the openness of the person as it does to the logic of the argument to really make a truth known this way. And he was often fond of, of uh, quoting Max Planck, who said in his autobiography that it's not so much that, that new theories are win people over by their by rationality and the strength of their argument, it's that the opponents die off and the new scientists that come in are the ones that are, grew up with these and they're more accepting of this. And I, I think that happens a lot with, with some of these beliefs and why it's sort of coming into our, this, this culture more. But the last way that we know things of a, in a spiritual nature is perhaps the one that's, that's the most important. And that's having come from the calm, centered communication of experience from a realized person. And so in our case, Yogananda and the masters, I talk about reincarnation. It's just something that you can say, hmm, this person knows a lot. He knows a lot more than me. He knows what he's talking about. And so as we see a new truth, it's say, okay, what do the saints say about it? What do people with some realization? What do people that I look up to, what do they say about it? And how can that influence what I'm doing? At Mount Washington, when Swami was there with, with Paramahansa Yogananda, his guru, Swami Kriyananda, said, you know, reincarnation was just, you know, matter of fact. It was never made a big deal out of. And Master would toss off things now and then and say, oh, you know, this is who this person was in a past life. You know, Stalin, he was Genghis Khan in a past life. And, you know, no big deal. He just sort of tossed it off. And one day, uh, you know, uh, the, the ghost of a, a soldier in armor came clanking through uh, Mount Washington. And Master said, oh, yeah, that was, you know, one of my soldiers from a past life that, you know, wanted to be released. And, you know, I was a Spanish king, and, you know, I released him. And it was just sort of there. It was, it was matter of fact. And Master used it to explain sometimes why there were conflicts between different people. And said, yeah, that's because you and he were enemies in a past life. You know, you just need to work it out. So it's, uh, it's something that the masters can, can bring to us. And it's not something you have to accept, you know, just out of the gate. There's a lot of people who would put themselves out as masters who would say lots of things that you might not want to believe right away, but tune into the things that you can experiment with, that you can know that meditation, okay, it does do what it says. Yes, this is, does seem to be wisdom. I can verify this. And then there's those things that are harder to prove that you can start bringing into your acceptance and into your worldview. So there are 
leads us to the question is, so is reincarnation really important then? I mean, is it something that I should put the time and effort into looking into and see if I believe in it and see if it's not? Well, no and yes. No, you can do a lot with a practice of yoga, of meditation, never believing in reincarnation, and it will have a tremendous benefit for you. You can learn to meditate, you can feel more peace, you can feel more calmness, you can improve your health, you can improve your intuition. It doesn't have anything to do with reincarnation. You can completely leave that on the shelf if you want. But there's a number of things that reincarnation is important for it can help us on the spiritual path. And, you know, we need a lot of help on the spiritual path. And so tuning into this part of it can help uh, in a number of ways. One is it can just give us a little bit more of a sense of hope because after we practice for a while, we realize, you know, this may not be so easy. It's not like somebody's just going to come up and tap me on the chest and I'm going into samadhi. This, this could take a while. And if you... <laughs> <laughs> and if you think that you only have this one lifetime, you could say, my God, I'm never getting there. I'm just, you know, this is a waste of time. But in the Gita, it says no effort is ever lost. Well, how can no effort ever be lost if the soul is lost or the, this body is lost at the end of a lifetime and goes away? So it doesn't. It stays with us. It keeps going. And those efforts that we've made, what we've learned, it makes a difference. It stays with us. It also can help us think more of uh, the benevolence of God. I mean, one of the things that's hard for people is to look around and say, okay, yeah, karma, and they did this, and there's action. But, you know, you see babies born that are deformed, or you see innocent people dying, or you see things that look tragic to us. And reincarnation, the fact that this isn't the only life, helps us tune into the fact that okay, there is a bigger plan working here, and it can make some sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you just look at little pieces of life. And then there's death. I mean, how much time do people spend preoccupied with death? You know, how many things do people do in life? How many grasping, you know, uncontrolled urges that can be, that can be traced back to their fear of mortality? And incarnation just says no. You're not going to die. You're just going to go on. It's not that big a deal. What's the worst that can happen? I can die, but I'm not going to die. I'm just going to go to a, a different life. It frees up a lot of energy. Subconscious, a lot of it's we've carried subconsciously from our culture. And, you know, we may say, oh, I don't believe in that. But, you know, just think about that. You know, when you're really upset or anxious, about something, what's the worst that can happen? I could die, but I can't die. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> And then we come to the fact that reincarnation and these teachings, it just puts our lives in perspective. So the perspective, once you start thinking about five to eight million lifetimes to get to a human form, millions of human incarnations, the universe, Yogananda said, is filled with conscious beings. It's not just this earth. All throughout, the, there's galaxies, there's universes, there's planets everywhere that have life. And how many times have I been there? How many times have I been elsewhere? How many millions of lives as a human? It sort of puts your perspective, puts it in perspective, your appointments for Monday morning, you know? It's just not that important in the big scheme of things. And, you know, you have to keep bringing yourself back to that vastness, to this 
insignificance of this little life, of this little moment. And, you know, how long does it take? It can be kind of a, a daunting thought. And the Shastras of India have this uh, image of a huge lake. You know, you can't even see across it so big. And this bird comes in, swoops down, and takes a drop of water in its beak and flies away. 5,000 years pass. The bird comes back again, takes another drop, flies away. And the Shastras say, the time that it's going to take that bird to empty that lake doesn't even begin to compare with the time that it can take a soul to come back to God. And in the, in the Rubaiyat, Master in his, in, his, in his commentary says, you know, there, there are souls who are incarnated in human bodies right now, and they're still going to be wandering in delusion at the end of a day of Brahma. A day of Brahma is when the universe dissolves back into that single unmanifest energy. It's a long time. <laughs> so what do we do with that? You go back to drinking because, oh my God, it's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> no, it says, I need to make an effort because I, I got to a human birth by just you know, just chunking along with the program. Five to eight million lives, I didn't have to do much. But once you're a human, you now have the, the, the keys. You can advance faster. This ego, the gift of the ego, allows you to choose where you put yourself, what your influences are, how you're going to look at, the, at life. And we need to put that energy there. Otherwise, you may be like that little drop. It might take a long time. And so the hope in this comes again from the teachings of the great masters. And Yogananda, Swami Kriyananda said in one of his talks in the, in the 90s, he said, probably the greatest thing that master brought to this country, to this world, was the awakening, the desire in people to want to know God. The awakening of that little seed, of planting that seed of it's possible. Yes, you want to know God. There is something more. This anguishing monotony is not your destiny. There is something else. And that is extremely important because in these vast incarnations, once that seed has penetrated through these sheaves of identification, through all these past lives, through all these likes and dislikes, once that little seed of the desire for God has been implanted, it will reach fruition. It has to. That's the promise of the masters. It will eventually blossom, sprout forth, and move. Remember, it takes very, very, very good karma just to want to know God. And the fact that master came in this time to America and through his consciousness, through his power, through his book, The Autobiography, which has been out there spreading his consciousness for 70 years, that seed is what the most important part that he brought. And he's planted it with all of us. That's in there. It will sprout. It just takes a little watering. It takes our effort. And the time it takes is really, it's up to us. <clears throat> For in and out, above, about, below, Tis nothing but a magic shadow show Played in a box whose candle is the sun Round which we phantom figures come and go 
Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days Where destiny with men for pieces plays Hither and thither moves and mates and slays And one by one back in the closet lays And that inverted bowl we call the sky Where under crawling cooped we live and die Lift not thy hands to it for help For it rolls impotently on As thou or I Ah, moon of mighty light Who knowest no wane The moon of heaven is rising once again How oft hereafter rising shall she look through this same God.